the conductor of an orchestra is the only musician who doesn't make a sound, but he has a lot of power. But the power comes entirely from his ability to make other people powerful. Right? When I realized that, it turned upside down totally my whole approach to leadership, to life, because the only thing that really mattered in that model of awakening possibility in other people, the only thing that matters is the state of mind and the state of being of the people you're conducting. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's today's question. How do you enroll people in your idea, mission or vision? And I'm not just talking about engaging people or getting their attention, although, you know, that's definitely one part of it. I'm talking about creating a call to action that is so visceral, so captivating that those that hear it would take great risks, attempt seemingly insurmountable challenges in order to not only travel that road, but travel that road with you. Today's episode is a deep look at that question. The question of how we stand in possibility so unshakably that others are compelled to stand with us. And my guest today to tackle this question is someone I first heard about many years ago. I was in the US having coffee with a friend and colleague of mine in the speaking industry, and I had asked him to name the best speaker he had ever seen. Now, he had been in the industry for decades until this point and is one of you know, the most respected people that I know of in that space. And I thought that he would kind of struggle with that question, and he didn't. Without any hesitation, he said one name, Benjamin Zander. Benjamin Zander is the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra and the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. His TED Talk on the transformative power of classical music has been seen by over 20 million people and counting. His best-selling book, The Art of Possibility, which was co-authored with his partner and leading psychotherapist, Rosamund Zander, has been translated into over 18 languages. He was awarded the Caring Citizen of the Humanities Award by the United Nations and the Golden Door Award by the International Institute of Boston for his outstanding contribution to American society as a United States citizen of foreign birth. At the ripe old age of 82, he also still enjoys a global career as a speaker on leadership, having spoken at the Davos World Economic Forum amongst a long list of significant other world stages. His speeches are, and I don't say this lightly, beyond powerful. He, If you ever have the pleasure of seeing him speak, please check out one of his talks online. He uses his love for classical music to engage the room in just an unparalleled way. He gets people to actually use classical music as a way of opening their minds, as a way of interacting, as a way of getting involved and standing in the possibility that is present within any room, within any interaction. In this episode, we talk about that and more. We take a road that's often less traveled in leadership, influence and relationships and sections with many sections, but some sections of that road include why choosing to stand in possibility is the greatest discipline of our lives and the impact that that choice can have not only on those around us, but also on some of the greatest challenges we currently face as a global community. Why every student in his class gets an A on the first day of term and how that choice as a leader and as a teacher profoundly impacted the musicians that they were able to go on and become. The art of enrollment, this one was huge for me. How to put out a call to your team or followers, one that is so grippingly honest and compelling 
that only the brave of heart would ever step forward, which, you know, let's face it, they're the ones that we want to work with anyway. What it means to be an interpreter within your space and why sometimes that involves apologizing for those moments where we failed to get people to enroll. And finally, why there are always two people playing a violin, the first being the player and the second being the voice inside their head and what the most accomplished musicians and performers in the world do when that voice gets a little bit too loud and a little bit too unhelpful. You know, honestly, I started this conversation with a long list of questions, a mile long list of questions. And in the end, I was just so captivated that I happily accepted Ben's invitation to do exactly what this podcast is about, answer the call of possibility and just forget about what I thought should be happening or what questions I thought we should be answering. Now, that's not an easy one for me, and it is a lesson that he is just a master at giving. What I would love you to reflect on as you listen isn't, as always, necessarily the tools alone, but his commitment to being an interpreter for the world of classical music, which includes using language and stories that make that world accessible for everyone. How many people right now would you say are in an industry or space like classical music that's transforming, that's looking for a new audience or new ways to engage, that's watching their existing target market either disappear or change their habits? In Ben's words, how would you walk? How would you talk? How would you be if you believed everybody loved what you do, but they just hadn't found out about it yet? Those who are able to show up like that, tell stories like that, enroll like that, will always strike a totally different chord. Now, for those who are looking to take their journey in influence to the next level, don't forget to hop onto my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and the seven core questions, seven simple questions that I have found in all my years doing this are hands down the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your own level of influence in your work, in your career or in your marketplace. Just pop in your email and it will be in your box in the time it takes to pour a cup of tea. On that note, sit back, drive safe and please welcome onto the podcast the incredible, irrepressible maestro himself, Benjamin Zan. Welcome to the podcast, Benjamin Zander. It's a pleasure to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I have admired your work for for many years, as we were just as we were just discussing. But before we get into the whys of that, I wanted to, I'm going to kick off with the question that I often kick the podcast off with, and that is, usually people who have incredible ideas have access to incredible ideas. They tend to find them before anybody else does. They tend to have a radar. So I like to kick off by asking, is there one particular idea either in relation to your work or not in relation to your work that's really caught your attention recently, that's had an impact on you? Well, it was very interesting because when you sent me that question, I thought about it quite a bit and I kept coming back to the same question. And it's not a new question. It's, if you like, an eternal question and one which has actually guided my life for well, since I was about, about half my life, I'm now 82, and it came, dawned on me at, at the age of about 43 or something, so it's about half my life. And it's a question that is fundamental to our existence, which is that every time we open our mouths, we have a choice, and the choice is whether we speak in what I call the downward spiral, or in possibility. Those are the fundamental, I mean, they're almost like two arenas, two ways of being. And that has been a guiding idea for me in my teaching, in my communication, in my relationship to people. And whenever I go out to share my experience of life and if possible guide young people particularly, uh, towards a richer, fuller, more uh, uh, carefree life in the sense of f free of cares. 
it's all it always comes back to that question because if you uh, make clear that you are in the possibility mode you can always trust that you can resolve problems and that if you're in the downward spiral mode you are bound to have problems they're they're built into the situation i'll give you a little example of that i was uh, in a in a meeting at Merrill Lynch, a company that you may remember, may know, and they were having a conversation about how they could be the best in the world, and it occupied people, and there was a tremendous amount of energy around it and and stress, and then suddenly a woman spoke up and said, "Why don't we talk about how we can be the best for the world?" Mm. And instantaneously the entire atmosphere in the room changed. The mood, the tone, the energy became different and a, and a completely different conversation arose as a result of it. So my premise is that if you stand in the world, in that distinction between downward spiral, and if I can just be br briefly speak about it in a, in a fuller way, the the downward spiral is actually a downward or upward spiral so it is the world of success and failure of winning and losing and therefore also of fear and pressure uh, also elation and excitement all the experiences surrounding that dichotomy between winning and losing the world of possibility is a world of inclusion of joy of love of expression of music of course and uh, they give out different vibrancies they give out different energies so a uh, conversation between my brother and a fellow parent when they went to a school football game of their children they walked away from the field and and my brother said wasn't that a wonderful game and the other parent said how can you say that we lost <laughs> all right these two people were standing in a different conversation they one was standing in the joy of a game and the pleasure of energy and athletics and communication and all those things the the other parent was standing in winning is all that matters right and if you win it's great and if you lose it's terrible and so if you're standing in the world of winning and losing success and failure by definition you're constantly facing disappointment fear aggression pressure jealousy you know all the emotions which go uh, with with that domain right? so the realization that these two worlds are separate they can they're not better or worse although the certainly the pleasures of uh, of the possibility model are a very different kind of pleasure the world of the downward spiral has its own joys excitement uh, you know that elation that sense of thrill adrenaline all that um, it, but it also has like the front and the, the front and the back of a hand the front of the hand is success the back of the hand is failure and if you realize that if you are fully conscious of the fact that when you go into a game somebody will win and somebody will lose and it's fine uh, then you already automatically have moved into possibility because you've recognized if you're at the mercy of the emotions what you get is disease disease right that's where it, where it comes from that's where the word disease comes from is disease and in the world of possibility, you have an easy flow of relationships and you can actually solve all problems if you stand in the world of possibility. So when you asked that question, which you did, which I got it in the mail, and you said, what idea, new or timeless, you said, um, is having the most influence on you at the moment? The answer is that timeless idea that I only discovered at the age of 45. Um, what I did was I had an opportunity to really think through what it is 
that we're doing in our connection with with people. And uh, I made a very important discovery, uh, which you think I would have noticed already. But the uh, the conductor of an orchestra doesn't make a sound, right? So he's the only musician who doesn't make a sound, and uh, but he has a lot of power. But the power comes entirely from his ability to make other people powerful. Mm. And that, when I realized that, it turned upside down totally my whole approach to actually to leadership, to life. Because the only thing that really mattered in that model of awakening possibility in other people, which is essentially what we're talking about, the only thing that matters is the state of mind and the state of being of the people you're conducting. Mm. And the attention then goes in a completely different place. And what I discovered was I could always tell whether I was being effective in that model, which was if the eyes of the people in the orchestra were shining, then I could tell that we were doing it. And if the eyes aren't shining, then I could discover we could ask a question. And the question is, who am I being that my player's eyes are not shining? And we could do that with our children too, you know, with our lovers and with our co-workers and, and so on. So the eyes, the shining eyes, became the main model, the main means of knowing how, how we were doing. So the, the whole model changed completely. And... I started speaking to corporations and to groups and schools and all sorts of things about leadership. And at my side was Rosamund Zander, who is a philosopher and a therapist and who could draw on a lifetime of enabling people to have fuller and happier lives. And so out of that came the book, The Art of Possibility. One of the things, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and you know, you touched on, you touched on so much there. You know, you touched on power, you touched on possibility. I wanted to talk to you about leadership and and how those things play into leadership. Now, you've said before that a leader doesn't doubt for one moment the capacity of the people he's leading to realize whatever he's dreaming. Mm. And I just, I loved that quote, and I want you to, if you wouldn't mind speaking to that quote, but also bringing in one of the tools that you use as a teacher, which is that you always start at an A. Right. Good. Well, here's the thing. The, the, the failure in, in life is very often because we don't trust that other people can be up to the task. Right? That's, that's a failure in leadership. And um, I've just had a dramatic example of that in COVID because we were faced with a catastrophe on March the 12th uh, a year ago. We gave a concert in Symphony Hall and it was the last concert that was given in Boston till now. There's still not been a scene. The, the, there's been no concerts in Boston since March of the previous year, 15 months or something. And it's a catastrophe. And so what do we do about that? Well, one of the things I did, which is lovely, and it was a small scale, but delightful, which was I started having live concerts in my driveway. Well, I have a slightly larger driveway than, than most houses, so there's room for a group of musicians and audiences at six feet dif distance. <laughs> and then there's the road and so on and so forth. And I, last time I gave 15 concerts. I didn't give them. I mean, I organized 15 concerts in the driveway. We called it Safe and Sound. Oh, <laughs> great title. And the word got out and people came in droves. Now, last Saturday, we had the first of the Safe and Sound concerts of this year. And it, things are very different now because it's opened up and people don't have to wear masks in America right now and, and, and we don't have to do social distancing. But still, I thought we should go on because there are still no concerts. And so I announced the concert and we don't advertise, God forbid, because if we advertise, we'd get thousands. Instead, we just, the, the word kind of tri trickles out and we make a few, uh, you know, send out a few emails to friends and so on. 
Anyway, about 200 people showed up to hear a Brahms sextet um, that was exquisitely played. And what we did was we filmed it and live streamed it. So it was heard around the world. I got an ecstatic note from somebody in Turkey and somebody else in Brazil and somebody else in Greece, somebody else in Finland. They were listening to Brahms from my driveway. <laughs> Now, which is such a beautiful example of what you were talking about, which exactly. is standing, standing impossibility. It's standing impossibility. So in possibility itself, there is actually no problem. And my father used to say this wonderful thing about it. He said, there's no such thing as bad weather, only inappropriate clothing. Now, <laughs> there's a kind of deep wisdom in that funny remark, because actually it's true, because there is nothing that, there's no situation in which you can't find possibility. And there's also no situation which is so good that you can't find the downward spiral of despair and anguish and upset and fear and all those things. So the discipline of life, and I think of it really as a discipline of life, is to first of all know that that alternative or that uh, those two worlds exist. The discipline is to always choose to move, speak, and be in possibility. And that takes terrific discipline because and none of us are able to do it all the time. Uh, nobody is able to do it all the time because mm. the pressure to fall into the downward spiral is because it's automatic, it's natural. If something bad happens or you think something bad has happened and you immediately fall into despair. For instance, uh, <laughs> I, I always used to, I always say, my teacher said this to us. She used to say, you cannot play great music until your heart is broken, right? And he's right. If, you, if you've never experienced loss, deep, deep passionate loss of something you love with all your heart, how can you experience great music? Because that's what music is expressing, the Tchaikovsky Sixth or the uh, Beethoven Patetic Sonata, whatever it is. Um, so he used to say that you can't, you can't express great music unless your heart has been broken. So the answer to that is go out and have a broken heart, get a broken heart, because if you haven't got it, you're not going to get to the music. So I told that story. I was in, in South America, in, in, in Venezuela, uh, where the music is unbelievable. You can't imagine mm. the music in, in Venezuela. It's a kind I think Simon Rattle said, it's the center of the musical world. Imagine that. But anyway, I was conducting the, the orchestra, the orchestra that Dudumel played in and then conducted uh, before he became a world figure. But anyway, his orchestra, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra, we were doing Mahler's Ninth Symphony, and which is one of the deepest, most heartbreakingly beautiful final statement of Mahler, really leading in towards his his death. And it calls on every human emotion that you can imagine and, and find access to. And I told that story during the course of the rehearsals. And the first horn came to me just before the concert. And he said, I've got some great news. I said, what? He said, my fiance just left me. And then he gave me a big hug and he said, it's going to be great tonight. And it was such a moving moment because here was a young man, maybe 25 years old, 24 years old, something. And he understood that music gives us access to the soul, to the deep feelings, to the emotions, to all that human beings are capable of experiencing and expressing. And without that doorway of deep sorrow or deep joy, or deep feelings. We can't get there. We can't get into the magic garden. And he understood that. And he knew that although he'd suffered this terrible blow of his fiance, I mean, this is uh, normally you'd, he'd be in such despair that he would call in sick and say, I can't play the concert. Not at all, he said. <laughs> and it's going to be a great concert. And it was. I heard him. He poured his heart and soul into that performance, all his love and his disappointment and his fear and his. Mm. And then, of course, all those emotions which usually belong in the destructive arena of winning and losing and success and failure suddenly became gloriously apparent in the world of possibility. And so those 
two, two worlds are constantly there and we always have that opportunity. So when I was faced with, uh, with the COVID, uh, we, because we started off, you remember many minutes ago, um, <laughs> with what happens with COVID, well, we couldn't play any concerts. And so you can go into despair, you can get angry, or you can turn to possibility, right? So um, I said to the youth orchestra, we can't play. You can't play on, on, on Zoom. It's, you can do many things on Zoom, but you can't play music because there's no coordination. So there's no point trying. Um, many people did try, and there's some people came up with lovely uh, solutions to various tricks of you know, strategy mm. to make Zoom work. But I, I wasn't interested in that. Either you make music or you don't. I said the only... Um, the only uh, musician who's silent is a conductor. And so I said, we have an opportunity here to do something very special. I said, uh, first of all, I sent out to the, there are a hundred people in the youth orchestra and many of them were not in Boston. One of them was in Korea and one of them was in, you know, in Texas and so wherever. So I sent out to them all a letter in which I, I, uh, read or printed in the letter the advertisement that Shackleton sent out when he was looking for men to join his trip to the Antarctic, right? And it's a it's a wonderful advertisement, and I have it here. It's a, he, this is what it says: Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition only in case of success. <laughs> and he got the 28 men that he needed to go on that journey and they all came back at the end of it. Now, so I sent that letter out and I said, I don't oblige you to do this, you know, because you, you may decide to sort of sit out until we can play again. But those of you who have the stomach for it, we're going to go on a journey. And the journey is this. We're going to imagine that we're all conductors, whether you're a cello player or a flute player or a trombone player or a horn or a harp player or whatever, you are the conductor, meaning responsible for the whole. You've got to learn the score. You've got to know what everybody's doing. You've got to understand the musical shaping, the, all the interpreted decisions. You've got to be master of leadership and how to deal with people and so and so over the year every week we met for two hours on saturday afternoon at 2 30 half past two the regular rehearsal time and my one of the students who was in korea i said amy you're going to be it's going to be 2 30 in the morning and she said i do not consider that a problem <laughs> Now, do you see in, in possibility the whole thing changes, everything changes. You suddenly yes. don't feel tired, you you have resources of energy and of joy and of participation and so on. And incidentally, when I sent out that message uh, discouraging them from joining, of the hundred, seventy signed up and fifty went on the trip on a regular basis every week. Well, that's fifty percent. And so we did that for the whole year, twenty-four classes and they came out of it with a deep understanding of the totality of music of the responsibility of the whole of being at the center leading from wherever they were can you imagine what that's going to do for their lives mm. and for their work and what the orchestra is going to sound like in september when we actually come together <laughs> so that's an example of there is always a pathway to possibility and Roz, my my partner Roz, has written a new book you probably don't know it it's it's been out a while but it's called pathways to possibility and that's another form of this this way of being this way of thinking that gives you a constant pathway forward whatever the circumstances the circumstances actually aren't very important although we think the circumstances are everything, but they're not. I want to just dive into something that you've that you've spoken about because I think it's it's not actually a question I prepared for you, but it's one that's on my mind listening to you talk right now. 
And it's around the biggest job that we have as leaders, one of the biggest jobs you have as a conductor and a teacher is getting people to answer the call. And what you did there with the Shackleton letter, you know, you are, you are sending out a call to people. This is our adventure. Are you, are you ready for it? Are you up to it? There's only a few people who are going to answer this call. What have you learned about getting people to answer the call that you put out? All right. Now, here's the thing. This is, this is beautiful. It's a beautiful question. And it's a very, very serious matter, what you're talking about here. And as usual, I'm going to tell you a story. Please. <laughs> Do I ever fail you with the story? Okay. All right. Here's the story. I was uh, teaching at a school in Boston called Walnut Hill School. It was a wonderful school for the arts. And I went there every week to give a class. It was called interpretation class. And um, no, it was called master class there. It was right. And, and I would have 60 kids in the room. Uh, and we would talk about music and life and all this thing. And one day, and, and four times a year, they would come to the Boston Philharmonic concerts. And they would sit in the balcony all together, this group of 60 people. And uh, that way they heard the music and so on. It was a great idea. We provided tickets for them and so on. And one day we had an extraordinary concert and it was fantastic. Uh, it was a, a violinist. It was my favorite violinist in the world. He recently died. He's called Ivory Gitlis, and and he's very unusual. He's very very different from the famous violinists that everybody knows. He's a Pullman and Pinker Zuckerman and all the people who everybody knows. This is a very different style, a totally different way of making music, and very exciting. And I'd been trying to get him to Boston. He's never been in Boston. He was seventy eight. It was the end of his career, and. Um, he and the word got out and people flew in from new york a couple came from oklahoma to hear him because they'd heard the word right and in fact the people from oklahoma couldn't get into the concert because it was sold out and so we had to put two extra chairs in in the in the auditorium so they could sit and listen so i came out to conduct the first piece on the program and i turned around to bow to the audience and i noticed in the balcony, there were 30 empty seats. And of course, I knew immediately this, these were my kids because they were all together. It had to be the group for the school. And I was pissed off. I was really angry. And the next day, I was driving to the school to give my class. And I was still in an irritated, angry state. And uh, I called Roz, and we were on the phone from the car. And I told her, these stupid kids, these idiots, these irresponsible, they didn't come to the concert. I had found out, meanwhile, that they'd gone to the mall shopping. <laughs> and I was, I was just livid. And she said, she listened to me for a while, and then she said, remember to apologize. I said, what do you mean apologize? Why should I apologize? What have I got to find? I mean, they knew they had to come. They were taking tickets from other people. They were keeping people away. And she said again, remember to apologize. And then she put down the receiver. <laughs> so I was driving along thinking, what on earth did she mean? And then I thought, thought about it. And then it suddenly came to me. And I went into the class and I said, kids, I'm so sorry. I didn't tell you about this conduct, this violinist. I didn't tell you that the sound of his instrument, just to hear the sound coming out of his instrument, would transform your relationship to music for the rest of your life. I didn't tell you that. So I let us all down. I'm so, so sorry. So the outcome of that is if people don't do what you want them to do, you can always apologize. Mm. because you didn't enroll them. Now, that is a, is a profound realization. And for people in our profession, which depends on people doing what we want them to do, it's all a matter of enrollment. And we forget that. We blame people 
for not doing what we want them to do, listen to our music, come to our concerts. You know, the lovely Sol Hurok remarked, the impresario in New York, Russian he was, he said, if they don't come, if they don't want to come to your concert, there's nothing you can do to stop them. <laughs> <laughs> and I often tell that story because it's very profound, the realization you can apologize for people when they don't do what you want them to do. Right? That's a, it's a very profound idea. Mm. One day I was sitting in a, in, a, in, a, in a restaurant after giving a talk to 1,500 people in a big hall. And a lady came up to me and she had tears in her eyes and she said, I want to thank you. You saved my marriage today. I said, what? She said, yes, my husband is moving out while I'm at this conference. And I want to tell you what happened. When you told that story, I ran upstairs and I called him. The, the moving truck was outside the house. And I said, please send the truck away. I apologize. And he did send the truck away. And so we're not talking about trivial matters here. We're talking about deep concerns of the human heart and the realization. And I'll tell you one more story because this is so important. Um, my father wrote a, a, a pamphlet in 1947, which was the year before the Jewish state was founded. And it was addressed to the Jewish people. And it's called, Is This the Way? And it was in answer to another pamphlet that had been written called, This is the Way. <laughs> but the, this was the question. He said to his fellow Jewish people, he said, we are about to set up our homeland in Palestine, which is understandable given our history. However, in order to do so, we're asking of the Arab people the ultimate sacrifice, which is to give up their land. If we remember that in every conversation and in every interaction, we will find them the most courteous of people. And if we forget it, we'll be doomed to eternal struggle. Now, there was great wisdom in his, uh, and prescience in that statement. Of course, the Jewish people ignored him. In fact, they were quite angry with him for even suggesting such a thing. But that is a realization of an understanding that enrollment, being, as it were, in the other person's shoes and bringing them into your world through your enthusiasm, through your love, through your uh, understanding is the secret of this issue. How do you get people to do what you want what you want them to do? It's all a matter of enrollment. And that takes not pressure, not manipulation, not strategy, not all those, that's all downward spiral stuff in order to, you know, win the to get a better deal, to get a one-up on somebody, that's all in the downward spiral. But if you feel very passionate about something and you love it deeply and you want other people to join it, then the art of enrollment is, and of course with the lovely quotation which you pointed out about um, never doubt the capacity of the people you're leading to realize whatever you're dreaming. Imagine if Martin Luther King had said, I have a dream. Of course, I'm not sure they'll be up to it. <laughs> that immediately takes away the effect of it. So these are difficult, difficult ideas in a way, although it's also quite simple in, in an important way, don't you? No, I think that there's, I, no, I think that there's a beautiful... For myself as a leader, just listening to you talk at the moment, there's a particular situation I'm thinking about that happened just yesterday and getting frustrated, something hadn't been executed the way that I had hoped that it would be executed. And I woke up this morning with that feeling in my gut of still irritation. And just listening to you speak, that that incredibly simple but profound frame between putting out the call, enrolling and, and apologising and right. saying, you know what, I obviously didn't make it clear enough how important this was to me yeah. or what this would achieve for us yeah. as we right. move forward for and, and how vital key. it is. What's the best for us? That's the question. And you, you weren't thinking what's the best for me or even uh, what what can you offer to the other person that makes No, it's for what's best for us is always the question. 
But uh, it's very, it's hard to do that. It's much easier to fall. It's automatic to fall into getting better than or getting the advantage over or those are, those are natural human tendencies. The world of possibility, which I'm talking about, is extremely disciplined and, and hard to create. You have to create it. You have to invent it. And, and it isn't always apparent. Uh, I, 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 of course, I love these stories because they're so powerful that when my father was interned, you know that the English, when Hitler was in, in, in Paris in 1940, and it looked as though he was about to attack, to invade England, the English kind of panicked and in, in, in took all the German people, it doesn't matter whether they're Jewish, not Jewish, who they were, and they, in fact, they took the, the first person they let out was the keeper of the elephants at the London Zoo because the elephants refused to eat. Well, he was nothing. He was just, he'd been, he was 70 years old. He'd been there half his life. He'd never bothered to become an English person. He cared about the elephants. But so they put all the German people in internment camps, not concentration, but internment camps. Mm. And it was a terrible situation because first of all, just the men, the women had to manage on their own, look after their families, imagine. But they'd all suffered so much. My father lost eight members of his family, his mother in Auschwitz, you know, the, and he lost everything in, in Germany, his money, his career, his language, you know. And now imagine what the mood was in that place. Talk about downward spiral. Uh, he looked around and said, there are a lot of intelligent people here, we should start a university. And so they started university in that camp and they had 46 classes each week running wow. without any books or paper or chalk or blackboard. So that, that that's what I mean. It's that, it's that idea that you, that doesn't come automatically. That, that, that's not natural. That's something created by, by a human being through thought. Talking of, an, of, of enrollment, talking of universities, talking to your work as a teacher, I hear that everybody in your classes gets an A. Right. Is that right. true? Yes, that's true. And let me explain how that happened. It was a very, very interesting thing that happened. I taught a class at the New England Conservatory in Boston, great music school, one of the great music schools of the world. I was there 45 years. And I had a class Friday afternoon, a wonderful class with many, many students, and then they were graduate students, so they were young professionals. And I noticed that in their playing, when they played for each other in the class, there was a tension. There was, there was a the music was stopped because of the anxiety and the pressure and the competition. And they were worried about their grades because if they didn't get a good grade, they wouldn't be able to go. You, you understand the next mm. day of life. And I came home with that problem to Roz. That's what I did. If I had a problem, I brought it home to Roz. I said, Roz, what can we do here? And she came up with this idea. Give an A to them all at the beginning. And then they won't be striving for a good grade because they will have already got a good grade. But that wouldn't have been enough because if they just got an A without anything else, they would have said, but what's my grade really? So I did something else, which was lovely, which was I asked them to write at the beginning of the year, the very first uh, class, to write a letter, which they would take, could take two weeks over. And the letter would be addressed to me with the date, May of the following year, when the class was over. Right? And the letter would, should begin this way. Dear Mr. Zander, I got my A because they would then have to write a letter describing who they had become by May. And they would write about who they saw themselves as, who's, mm. who they wanted to be, who they had this idea. And, and not with, I hope, and I expect, and I want, and no, they had actually achieved it. And it was difficult for them. Sometimes they had to write the letter two or three times before they got the A letter right. But the A letter was a description of exactly who they are without the voice in the head telling them they can't do it. And they would walk into class with that joyous feeling. They were walking into a space in which they could be the best they could be. Now, when I came into the class, I was surrounded only by A students. I only take A students. 
<laughs> it's a good way to keep your grade average up. Right, which is delightful for a conductor because you're taught, for, a, for a teacher to have only A students. And of course, that idea can be translated into any part of life. You can give an A to a waitress at a restaurant or to a taxi driver, or even, as I said to a group, to your mother-in-law, whereupon somebody shouted, you don't know my mother-in-law. Well, that's that's the downward spiral speaking. So the A, giving of the A, I think is like a cornerstone of the the model of possibility. And when I go to an orchestra, I give an A to everybody in the audience. That doesn't mean everybody's equal. It means that I'm speaking to the best part of that person. Mm. I'm expecting them to function at the highest level that they're capable of that they want to. And I, if they have a problem of some kind, they make a mistake. We say, how fascinating. And, and we create an atmosphere of joy and respect and, and love, essentially. Love is a word we don't completely understand, doesn't even exist in Japanese, I understand. But in, deep down, we really do know what we mean by that. It's what we feel when we put our head on the tummy of a, uh, a five-month-old baby. <laughs> we know what that means. So that atmosphere of essentially of respect and, and, and speaking to the best part of somebody, that has become a central part of my life. And, uh, and I think of the possibility model as a whole. In everything that I see written about you, in all of the language, this one word comes up again and again and again, and it's interpreter. It's that you, are, that you put so much of your time and mastery into interpreting right. music for people in terms of how it applies to their lives, how it, the lessons that you have learned from music and how they can apply. Right. Did you consciously choose that as a role for yourself or has that come about? Well, it's an essential element in a musician. Uh, I mean, if you start at the very, very beginning, and I did in this class with the ki- with the kids on the Shackleton trip, you know, the COVID trip, I, I went to the beginning. I said, you're a little child and you're sitting on the floor and the teacher says, let's sing row, 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 row. So you say, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. I mean, every child has done, I mean, in the English-speaking world, uh, has done that. Or Mary had a little lamb, you know. So notice my head, row, row, row. But it doesn't sound at all merrily, 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 merrily. <laughs> now, if you taught a child that certain notes are emphasized and certain notes are not, you could get them to do row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. And imagine a whole bunch of little kids singing like that. It would change the world. They'd grow up and they wouldn't act like bankers all the time. (laughs) You know, because that buoyancy, that liveliness, that vitality, the sense of... Uh, the, the wonderful pianist uh, uh, Fleischer, Carl, um, Leon Fleischer, one of the greatest musicians America ever produced, he said, classical music is an act of anti-gravity. That's a beautiful idea because mm. row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. You see, it's buoyant. It's held up there. It's still there. Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. That's an interpretation. That's going beyond what's routine, what's normal, what we do on automatic pilot. And so interpretation is always the, the other way, not, not on automatic pilot. And if you think deeply about music, as I have now, I'm 82 years old, and I've thought a lot about music, and I realize that what used to be understood if I was sitting at the piano, I could demonstrate it. And I was thinking with my assistant, should I be at the piano or should I? No, we decided I'd be here at the computer, uh, so I can't do it. But uh, but on my TED Talk, for instance, which has now been seen you know, by over 20 million people, apparently, I, I take this premise. Everybody loves classical music. They just haven't found out about it yet. Right? Many people haven't found out. That's the premise. And, and I prove it. I don't just give statistics, I actually go through the process of taking a piece of music, which is the Chopin E minor prelude, which is a piece that I can actually play because I'm not a pianist, um, and and uh, can demonstrate how Chopin wrote it and, and, and what it, the meaning of it. It starts on a B and it goes down to E, and I tell the story. And 
everybody can follow that and then they feel the emotions that that are attendant to that story i tell people to think of somebody they love who they haven't who they who's no longer in their life and and they so they attach the emotions to somebody they love and it it never fails i mean it's not possible to fail because the music is designed to create those emotional reactions and um, so everybody can respond if you play music in a way that makes sense and one of the things that i love and respect deeply about what you do is, and it goes back to that word interpreter again, you are able to take the story of music. You're able to take the story of a song, of a note, take that story and make it my story, make it somebody else's story. And I think that that's one of the core traits of leadership, that you're able to take a story and make it the story of somebody else. It's the, it's the, the call, the the call to enroll. There was this story that you told, which I think highlights that beautifully of when you were working with some street children in Ireland and teaching them about classical music. Do you, do you recall that story? Yes. Now I, I do remember that I, what it was, um, it was slightly different. I was giving a talk in Ireland it was many, many years ago. Um, and I did that Chopin thing. I did the Chopin because one of the pieces that I can play and it makes it makes the point very if if people listening to this conversation since we haven't had any music go on that TED talk and 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 you could see the Chopin and I don't play it particularly well because I'm as I say I'm not a pianist but um but it makes the point and it tells a story and what I did in this talk it was a talk of young people Protestant Catholics together trying to find some common ground. And that, that was the point. And I went to Ireland to give that talk. And the next morning, one of the young people, he came up to me and he said, you know, I've never listened to classical music in my life. But when you played that shopping piece, <laughs> he thought it was a shopping piece. <laughs> he never heard the word shopper. Uh, he thought it was a shopping piece. He said, he said, I got tears in my eyes and I felt, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like that, that he was deeply, deeply moved by it. And it had a tremendous effect on him. And uh, it was so extraordinary because he was, he was a proof, if you like, of, of, the, of my premise that everybody loves classical music. They just haven't found out about it. And he said, my brother was shot last year. And at the time, I didn't cry. But when you asked me to think of somebody who was missing in my life, he was the one I thought about. And when that music started and you were playing, I felt the tears streaming down my face. And it was the first time I'd ever cried for my brother. And I want to thank you for that. And it obviously had moved you because it, it, you're telling the story and it moved me and here we are 15 years later telling the story it's unexpected it's just not what you you is tough irish kid in the middle of war uh moved by a shop by prelude one of my final questions for you and i've got you have said that there whenever someone is playing an instrument there are two people playing two people playing the violin there's the person playing and the person whispering in his or her ear. I think we can all guess, but who is that person whispering and how have you come to learn how to master that voice? Right, that's a beautiful question. Well, the person, of course, is you speaking. There are two people in your life. There's the downward spiral, which is out to get you. It's invented, it's an invented voice and telling an invented story. You're not good enough, other people are better. You're gonna make a mistake, you know, there's a difficult passage coming up you're going to make a mistake and that's out to get you and the other voice is the one of possibility which is you have a beautiful piece of music and you want to share it with the people in the audience who can't wait to receive it that's the model of possible that's possibly right and if you trust as i do deeply that music beautifully played and beautifully interpreted interpreted can actually change the lives of people in the audience then that's the one to be that's the conversation to be in and i i often tell my uh, players before we go to a concert i say remember that there's somebody in the audience who's hearing the music for the very first time and somebody in the audience who's hearing it for the very last time and focus on those 
people. And if, the, as one person said to me, <laughs> said, what happens if that voice in the head comes while you're playing? And I mm. said, you turn to the voice and you say, thank you for sharing. I'm busy. Now, you have to be busy with something. And the busy, to, to you have to have a vision. You have to have something that is louder and more compelling than the fear, fearful voice whispering in your ear. And that's the same of anything that you want to do. It's like when you have a child, you may give up smoking because the call to smoking is incredibly powerful, as we know, or to alcohol or whatever it may be, or to drugs. But you get a child and, and you suddenly realize, no, now there's something bigger. There's, I'm busy. No, I have no time for that. And so the thing is to find things in life that are so compelling and so worth your attention that they will be more powerful than the voice of negativity, competition, fear, dis-ease that will be there automatically in your ear. And when you go into, into the concert hall, and I mean that as, an, as a metaphor for life, we're in the concert hall sharing great music with people. The, the voice will be there. It, it'll never go away. As I always say, it's, the, the voice stops when you die. It's one of the only really nice things about dying. You finally have that voice shut up. But meanwhile, it's there, and it'll whoever you are will always be there. And if it comes up at inconvenient moments, I, I, I always love, and this is a good way to end if we're going to end. I don't want this conversation to end, incidentally. And, and that's the thing about possibility is that it doesn't ever end. It's always going. Um, uh, Lao Tse, the great Chinese philosopher, had a wonderful comment. He said, because of deep love, we are courageous. And I wrestled over that. What does that really mean? Well, the, the, the mother who has a child, and I, I say the mother because we all understand about motherly love, the mother who has a child in a burning building runs into the burning building without hesitation. She doesn't wait outside and wonder whether she has the courage to do it. She runs in. And the thing that gets her into the building is not courage, it's love. So I always say to people who are facing fear, don't look for courage, look for love, and the courage will come. That's, in a sense, a roundabout answer to your question. How do you deal with that voice? The voice is there to undermine you, but it's an invented voice. The other voice, the voice of possibility, the voice of courage and love um, is also invented. It's an invented thing. But important to realize that to make the life of each life about something more compelling than that voice of worry and fear. And if you if you attach yourself to wealth and fame and power, which is what most people do, their, their obsessions are right from a very young age. They see fast cars and expensive houses and beautiful things, and they want them. And so they want more money. And then they, they see people famous on television and getting a lot of likes on their, on their website or whatever. Uh, and power is the ability to have power over other people. Those are the three human obsessions, wealth and fame and power. I'm not interested in any of them. What I am interested in is how many shining eyes do I have around me? And if you focus on that, you won't get into the tangle of competition and fear and that winning and losing and constantly calculating how, how is it going and how are other people doing looking over your shoulder. And that was a beautiful thing about that we started with the Merrill Lynch lady who said, should we not talk about how we can be the best in the world and rather the best for the world? And that is all about shining eyes. Thank you. Thank you, Ben, for your time. Thank you for your work. And thank you for diving so deep into this conversation with me today. Well, it's been a great joy. And uh, I, I end by quoting Dostoevsky, who said, with an intelligent person, even conversation is a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. 
You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.